the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, Starbeast Run Rampant, a roundtable discussion of Robert A. Heinlein with Wynn Spencer and Heinlein scholar William H. Patterson, Jr. We ask the important question, was Heinlein agent Lurton Blassingame an alien, or just a guy with an amazingly weird name? Roundtables, Nostalgia Wallows, Frank Assessments, and Part 10 of the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Editor Tony Daniel. Coming up is the first of our roundtable discussions on the life and work of Robert A. Heinlein. Today we delve into Heinlein's novel The Star Beast with Bain author Wynne Spencer and Robert A. Heinlein's scholar William H. Patterson, Jr. And, of course, we continue our complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. Wanted to get all of this really fascinating and entertaining roundtable in, so let's get right to it. Here is the Bain Free Radio Hour Robert A. Heinlein Roundtable Number 1, The Road to the Star Beast. With me today is... Bain Editor Emeritus Hank Davis. Hi there. And we have with us William H. Patterson, Jr. and Wynn Spencer. Yes, we have, we have not met, which is surprising since uh, uh, we just haven't run into each other at conventions, I guess. Well, I used to be East Coast, so um, I haven't been to a whole lot of West Coast conventions. Now, Wynn is in Hawaii at the moment, and Bill, you told us you were in Los Angeles? So we are stretching out across the Pacific. This is the first of a series of Robert A. Heinlein roundtables that Bain is going to do this year on the podcast. Uh, let me just start by introducing it uh, and our main subject, which is Robert A. Heinlein. Robert A. Heinlein did not burst forth from the head of Zeus, a science fiction writer. Uh, after growing up in Kansas City, Missouri, Heinlein followed his brother's pathway and got an appointment to the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis, where he, in 1929 he graduated 20th in a class of 243, did well. After serving as a gunnery officer on the first U.S. aircraft carrier, he came down with tuberculosis and was cashiered from active duty by the Navy. Uh, thrown out of a career at 27, a career to which he'd expected to devote his life, and sick with tuberculosis, the young Heinlein spent the next five years reinventing himself through trial and error. What worked was science fiction. Now, in the 1940s, Heinlein cracked the slicks, these well-regarded magazines such as Saturday Evening Post and others, and was asked to produce a series of juveniles, which we would now call young adult or YA novels, by the upscale publishing house of Charles Scribner's son, and I'm sure therein hangs a tale, which we'll ask Bill Patterson about. The, the juveniles became breakout bestsellers, were snatched up by an expanding system of local libraries, and created a decent living for Heinlein. Heinlein ultimately produced 13 of them. To discuss Heinlein's young adult novels, his influences on later generations, and one of uh, the Scribner juveniles in particular, The Star Beast, we do have with us William H. Patterson, Jr. and Wynn Spencer. Now, 
I think we could say without a doubt that Bill Patterson is the foremost scholar of the life and works of Robert A. Heinlein. Patterson founded the Heinlein Journal in 1997 and co-founded the Heinlein Society with Virginia Heinlein in 1998. He has also been designated the Heinlein Scholar of the Heinlein Prize Trust. He's the author of uh, this massive and wonderful biography, Robert A. Heinlein, in Dialogue with His Century, Volume 1, 1907-1948, The Learning Curve, or Learning Curve, just without the article. I love this biography. I hate science fiction biographies in general, um, and I was just really impressed with this one. Um, we'll uh, we'll I just, ask you. I hope it was worth 14 years' worth of work. Well, I think it was. You know, and some science fiction biographies were not worth the work the authors put into them, <laughs> because... <laughs> They're just, you yeah. know, they're not so great. But, um, it, 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 I mean, usually, my feeling is they're usually either hagiographic, um, or else they're, they're full of a lot of gossip that I don't care about. And this one really struck yeah. a, a wonderful balance of the things that matter about, you know, about Heinlein. Well, that's actually very gratifying to hear because I spent something like five months drafting up a plan of about three dozen story arcs that had to be managed simultaneously. Mm-hmm. So when, when somebody sees those things going on, it's very gratifying. Yeah, and it came together really, really well. I mean, the, the attention to detail and the, the fact, I mean, you can just tell when somebody has culled something over and, and worked on it, you know, and, and there's a professional touch to it that is missing <laughs> from a, a great many other uh, biographies you see in the field. Bill is also the author of the introduction to Bain's reissue of The Star Beast and several other introductory essays in other Bain Heinlein volumes. And Wynne Spencer is the author of the critically acclaimed and popular Elfholm series of science fiction and fantasy hybrid novels. These include Tinker, Wolf Who Rules, and latest entry Elfholm. She's also the author of contemporary fantasy Eight Million Gods, which will be out from Bain in hardcover in June. Wynn is also the author of the Afterward essay in Bain's reissue of The Star Beast. Now, Wynn Spencer, like me, is a science fiction author who has who was very much influenced by Heinlein in her youth. Wynn, I believe you're about this. We're about the same age, and we're adolescents in the 1970s, uh, if I'm not mistaken. So we are the sort of post-boom second generation of Heinlein readers who went on to become science fiction writers. Before we get to the scholarship with Bill and, and to get some perspective of why we're having this roundtable in the first place, why don't we all reminisce a bit about our first encounter with Heinlein's work and what effect it had. When, uh, why don't we start with you? Okay. Yeah, I read The Juveniles as a teenager. Um, I had a deal with my parents that would learn how to play accordion if they would take me to a bookstore um, before my lessons and buy me books. Um, when I found the Junals, I didn't realize I was second generation because they had been reprinted with new covers in the 70s. So they looked like new books to me, and I, I did not realize they were actually 20 years old when I picked them up. Um, I read Star Beast first, and then I tracked down the others, and I know I've read Have Space Suit, Will Travel, Tunnel in the Sky, The Rolling Stones, Darwin Jones, um, at least um over half if not all of them um it's one of those when the names are not as familiar as the plot lines when i look up the plot lines like oh yes it's that one um and 
they were the first books that really made it feel like that science and the fantastic future of traveling among the stars belonged to me as a kid. It didn't matter that I wasn't grown up. And especially with Star Beast, um, Westville was no bigger than my hometown. Um, so it, it felt like something that could happen to me. And I think that was very important with me clicking with the juveniles. Bill, how about you? Just as a reader, what well, was your first encounter with Heinlein? Yeah, uh, actually, I, I do have to uh, to add a correction here. If you and Wynn started in the 70s, you're third generation. I'm second generation. Uh-huh. Because I started in 61 or 62, and, of course, by that time, all the juveniles had been published. Um. Oh. When I was, I can't remember, maybe third grade or fourth grade, I started a project <clears throat> that I would read every book in our school library, which is not, <laughs> not that big a deal. Um, this sounds there, there like were, I did. I did. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I'm that, that kind of guy. And the, right, people who tend to be writers tend to be that type of person. Yeah. Um, as uh, as you entered the one room of our library, the <laughs> the uh, locked cabinet was on the right, and the Fiction Z was on the left. So I started with Fiction Z and read backwards. And I they had a lot of interesting stuff. They had Fowler Wright's Throne of Saturn, and yeah. and uh, you know the wonderful flight to the Mushroom Planet, and the Miss Pickle books. I was, I was actually very fond of, of the Miss Pickle books at the time. And these will all be blasts from the past or unknown names. I bet Hank knows um, a few of these names. I've I, I read all three of those. Oh, all three. Uh, I, I read Miss Pickerel Goes to Mars. I, I, the library, school library didn't have any other Miss Pickerels. Yeah, the Fred the Bad Low being company. Oh, there were, there were about, there were about two dozen of them, I oh, think. Oh, I, I missed out on them. Yeah, I think my, my favorite at that time was, uh, I think Miss Pickle and the Submarine, something like that. She had a nephew who was a submariner. And uh, for a long time, I wanted to be a submariner when I grew up. But I grew up to be six feet tall and colorblind. So mm. both of those things disqualified you. So anyway, I got to the ages in my reading backwards. Then I hit one of two books. I can't remember which one it was. It was either Farmer in the Sky or Starman Jones because I read them back to back. And by the comparison of the stuff I was reading, and, you know, the names of the stuff that I've been saying, these are these are not low-quality books. These are quality children's literature. But the Heinlein stuff was just another level of reality opening up. Um, and at that time, those were the only two items that they had in my in my grade school. But we had a bookmobile. I lived in a suburb of Phoenix, Arizona. And once a week, we had a bookmobile. So gradually, over a period of about three or four months, I guess, I got all of the, well, all of the books they would let me have, let's put it that way. Um, because I was, as I said, 11 or 12. But uh, so it didn't, it didn't get me stranger to strange land. I had to come to that later. But there were some of the other adult books. I think uh, Puppet Masters was one of those that I read. 
and that was exactly the right age to just creep the heck out of you. Yeah. So that was my that uh, was first your... encounter, and thereby hangs several tales. Yeah. Well, the um, just to put in mind, um, I, my first Heinlein book I ever read was Stranger in a Strange Land, which was in my high school library. Um, and uh, I had uh, I, I was blown away by it. And I came to the juveniles after having read that, which was an interesting experience. Um, but in any case, yeah. uh, my librarian said to me uh, that she had talked to her uh, college-age son, and he told her that this book wasn't really appropriate for uh, for high school readers. And uh, she took it immediately after I read it, because she knew I was reading it, because I read everything in that library. Uh, she took it off the shelves. <laughs> and so I think I was the last person in Anniston, Alabama to, uh, Close at the Donahoe Schools Library I had to read that. Actually read Stranger in Strange Land, but I didn't pay any attention to the author name at that time because I was like 11 and I was kind of like, what the hell was that about? I'm not sure. It was a little yeah. bit too old. I was me. I was probably um, 14 or 15 at the, at the time so I was probably able to I didn't really get it but I grokked it in a, in a certain fashion. So Hank, uh let's let's let, since you are a huge Heinlein reader and fan and um have been a, a long-time supporter of our Heinlein reprinting program here at uh, at Bain, give us your uh, first encounter with uh well I I turned out to be a hard sell actually. Uh, first encounter with Highline was Green Hills of Earth in an anthology. And, uh, I think I was maybe 11 or 12, and I read the story and felt it didn't have enough action. Needed to grow into it. And, uh, my second encounter with Highline was when I joined the science fiction book club in the second grade, and they sent me, uh, Double Star. Which I thought was interesting, but yeah, it, it, uh, it, it didn't quite grab me. And then a few months later, they sent me Time for the Stars, which was my first Highline Juvenile. And that one again didn't quite grab me. And then a few months later, they sent The Door in the Summer. And that was like lightning striking. And after that, I was looking for all the Highline to get my heads up. And of course, now I like Double Star. Now that I'm older, I like Double Star and, uh, and the story at the Green Hills Birth much better. Well, uh, Bill Patterson, can, let's talk about the, the juvenile period. Uh, they call these, I mean, you, I guess Scribner called them juveniles back in, uh, in the late forties and fifties when they were publishing. Uh, no, that was, that was actually, that was actually before that term came into use. Um, in 1947, no, 45, when he was first contacted to do a juvenile, they were just called boys' books. Well, what what led up to Heinlein writing these? What what when was he writing them, and what was the reception for them? Well, the the very beginning is that while he was in Philadelphia, working for the Navy during World War II. Um, toward the end of that, he was getting burned out with naval, pardon me, of um, aeronautical engineering. And it was obvious that the war was winding down, so he was thinking about getting back into writing and what he would do this time and what he would not do this time. Uh, I don't want to get diverted, but uh, can, of, uh, Bill, but can we, this was the famous, uh, 
Naval Yard where um, other science fiction writers, he, he Heinlein basically got them jobs during the war. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, in, in very rough terms. Uh, so it was specifically Elspreg de Camp and Isaac Asimov. Uh, DeCamp was actually at the Naval, the Philadelphia Naval Yard before Heinlein, but, uh, Heinlein's, one of Heinlein's really good friends from when he was, he was in the Naval Academy was running that section at the time. He pulled in Heinlein because Heinlein was looking for, uh, he was actually looking to get back into the regular army. So anyway, um, let's get back on track. I just, uh, it, that, that Philadelphia Naval Yard, uh, Era is is fascinating, but can be a be a had, podcast in itself. And they had nothing to do with the events in the Philadelphia Experiment movie. <laughs> uh, a, a Philadelphia publisher approached him to do a juvenile, and so he put it on his agenda and was thinking about it when the war ended. Uh, the problem was they wanted him to do a small town setting about twenty years after the end of the war, and by this time Heinlein was convinced that. Um, the development of rocketry and aviation was going to be such that there would not be small towns essentially anymore, at least not on the pattern that they had been to the 30s and 40s. So he didn't want to do that. So he comes back to Los Angeles, and he's of two minds about this, because writing for kids is difficult. And it's not something that he had really done before. Young people, yes. The readers of Astounding... Um, in the pre-war years, was basically 17, 18, 19 years old. Maybe, maybe some as well as 14. But it was a little older than the audience he was being asked to address here. So he consulted all of the professional writers he knew in Los Angeles. He knew a few. Um, and Fritz Lang said, there really isn't anything more. Fritz Lang, the uh, filmmaker. Yeah. Uh-huh. Told him there really isn't anything more important that you could be doing than shaping the next generation. And so when, uh, Cleve Cartmell, another writer friend of his, said almost exactly the same thing, Heinlein decided to go ahead and write the juveniles. But he wasn't going to write it for the Philadelphia publisher. So he started writing Rocket Ship Galileo. He, he cast, he planned a series that's obviously, if you look at the outlines that are in his files, it's obviously based on or planned around the the model of the Tom Swift stories that were, <clears throat> I think it was Victor Appleton three, was just starting to publish about that time. Yeah, these were frequently uh, in Boy's Life, were they not? The Boy Scout magazine that was that had a huge circulation. Um. You know, I can't remember whether the Tom Swift were in Boy's Life, but it's certainly the kind of thing they did. And, of course, that's why Heinlein wound up writing for so much for them in the 50s as well. So how did we get, how did he end up uh, at this uh, this sort of literary house of Scribner's? That uh, has much to do with the state of publishing in the uh, middle to late 40s. After the atomic bombs went off, in, in August of 1945, suddenly all of these science fictional concepts were in the public mind. And there was a huge demand for science fiction, and there were no publishers of science fiction. Now, that's not to say there weren't individual books that had been published. 
I mean, Swan had been published by Simon and Schuster in 1946, uh, but there were no houses that specialized in science fiction at that time. And the major publishers were kind of gingerly about this because they couldn't figure out whether this was just a fad that would go away in a few months or not. But there were a few houses that said, well, no, we're going to establish a science fiction line. And so Scribner's tagged their children's editor, the Newbery Award medalist, not Newbery Award, but the Newbery Medal Award winner of Alice Dogwish, who edited their children's books, and, and they tagged her with it. She really didn't have any background for it, but uh, Heinlein had got himself a brand new agent in uh, Lurton Blassingame while he was uh, still back east. And Lurton Blassingame was extremely familiar and well-known to uh, all of the New York publishers and the international publishers, for that matter. Blassingame is, is, was Heinlein's agent for a long time, correct? And also he was the one of the principal correspondents in the Heinlein uh, correspondence collection, Grumbles from the Grave. Yes. Uh, well, most of the Gumballs from the Graves uh, letter selection that was done by Virginia Heinlein ha uh, tried to focus more on his writing career with only sidelights about his biographical stuff. So consequently, there was a lot from Campbell of the Campbell correspondence, and then there was a lot from Lurton Blassingame because he was handling all of the details after the war. Yeah, I mean, if you if you want, uh, Heinlein never wrote a book about how to write. Um, but if you want something that's close to that, uh, you can check out Grumbles from the Grave, which is a, a real, you know, just watching Heinlein's writer's mind at work. You can, you can see it there in the letters that he's writing to, uh, John, De the famous uh, science fiction editor of astounding John W. Campbell and to Lurton Blassingay. Um, all of the correspondence between Robert Heinlein and John W. Campbell, which makes a very thick book was published uh, by the Virginia Edition Publishing Company as part of the collected works of Robert Heinlein. There are three volumes of letters, one huge volume about, uh, I'd say about 300,000 words, or maybe more, is just Heinlein and Campbell. Additionally, a lot of the material that would have gone into that book on how to write was in his comments back and forth to his Hollywood agent, not Ned Brown, when he was writing... TV scripts in uh, 1953 and then again in 1964. Those are also in the Virginia edition screenplays volumes. Well, excellent. Um, I would also add that uh, we have Bain has Grumbles from the Grave available as an ebook um, on at BainEbooks.com with a, with an introduction by me, Tony Daniels. So you could check out all of those sources if you oh. want to. If you want to look into that, tell us more about Alice Dalglish. Um, I believe I'm, she was the editor on almost all of the, uh, Heinlein juveniles. And they, she and Heinlein yeah. seemed to, he wrote somewhere that Dalglish seemed to believe that, quote, science fiction consists of stories about the wonderful machines of the future, unquote, and everything else was a sign an author was working on it out his inner mother complex or scrawling sexual notions on, on the blank slates of young readers' minds, they had a strained relationship, didn't they? Can you tell us about that? How it affected the creation of the uh, of the juveniles? Well, it was it was kind of an up and down relationship. Uh, there, there was certainly strain, 
but um, in in his later correspondence, he, he talked these things out with Lord Blassingame uh, as well. So we have an extra sideline on on this that don't show up in the correspondence directly with Dogwish. He basically yeah. blint, vented to Blassingame. <laughs> Which was actually a professional purpose of Blassingame. <laughs> it was part of his job. That's why they pay you the big bucks. Uh, he, he came to the conclusion that his problem was really not so much with Alice Dogwish as with the children's lit industry. Um, there were things you simply couldn't do or couldn't get published. Uh, and Alice Dogwish's job was to make sure he didn't step over those lines. And he, he hated that in exactly the same way that Mark Twain hated his, his wife, Olivia, censoring him. But Olivia's censorship of Twain was an absolutely essential part of the process, and Alice Dogwish's guidance was an essential part of the juvenile's process. The problem was the juvenile process was what he was having the problems with. He said he felt like Gulliver, being tied down with 10,000 threads of the taboos of children's literature at the time. Well, the it, it it can probably be argued that those very constraints forced him to be more creative and come up with solutions that he wouldn't have otherwise tried and, and perhaps even improved um, because it, it, there were constraints, but there were also opportunities. That's one of the things that I deal with people who are trying to break into publishing is I tell them, if you want an indie press, you can write anything. But if you actually want to break into publishing and be a traditional published author, you have to look at market. You can't ignore the market and be traditionally published. If you want to go for the masses, if you just want to write to one person or a small pocket, you don't have to worry about things. But as soon as you start trying to reach the masses, there are constraints there. And you have to know yeah. what those constraints are. Uh, as an aside, I would say that that when uh, herself, as a writer, um, marvelously um, walks along that line of of stuff readers like and trying new stuff and being very creative, um, <laughs> I, I'm impressed with her writing. Anyway, let's get back to Heinlein. Um, one question I have is the end of the juveniles when he wrote Starship Troopers. Now, Hank uh, here, Hank Davis has suggested that uh, at least there's a theory that Heinlein was trying to get get himself fired from writing juveniles anymore. Um, <laughs> is that the case, or to the best of our knowledge, or was it just the fact that um, the times were changing, he wrote something that, that the Scribner didn't want to publish anymore? What was going on there? It's a bit of a lot of different things, and it may not have been 100% clear in Heinlein's mind at the time. Um, it's pretty clear from the manuscript of Starship Troopers that he actually thought he was writing a juvenile. Now, there are some qualifications on that. Uh, this takes place just after he had been, he had mounted a political campaign to have the U.S. not stop unilateral nuclear testing. 
had that become known to the editors at Scribner's that he that Heinlein's basically had gone from, I mean, in a in very general terms, from from being something of a of a middle of the road socialist to um, a libertarian in mindset and and a conservative in some ways, definitely a, an individualist. In well, old... I don't think people, I, I don't think people were aware of that. People to this day don't seem to be very aware that the country which performing an evolution was shifting to the left. Um, uh, and Heinlein's personal evolution in, in uh, well, the, we could say that the, the 60s happened, <laughs> yes, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that's when people became generally aware of it. Um, but the, the, to continue the thought there, um, he had become kind of radicalized. Um, and uh, uh, I guess let me go back and complete a sentence I was about to say. From about 1954 onward, the Soviet Union was doing some pretty dastardly things. I mean, the, the invasion of Hungary in, uh, Hungary in 1956, which earned Nikita Khrushchev the name of the Butcher of Budapest, and then Sputnik going up in, in 58, 57 rather. Um, and the Eisenhower administration, with one exception, made absolutely no gesture saying that there were any limits on what would be tolerated. That one exception was Kimoy and Matsu, but that's a discussion for another time. So Heinlein had become radicalized and said, if we don't do something effective, then the U.S. is going to go down the drain. And so he felt it more and more important that the more important things had to be said. And so he set out to say that to his juvenile, these things to his juvenile audience. So he starts off thinking he's writing a juvenile. But it's pretty clear to me that that first chapter in which he has Johnny Rico as a field infantryman nuking a city with a uh, yeah, tactical nuke, uh, could never conceivably have been published in the Duck and Cover Generation. Yeah, well, so there may have been the something of two minds going on. Yeah, the I mean, we could make various political arguments about the times. I mean, I would argue that Heinlein didn't go anywhere. That in fact, uh, American publishing went away from him and from the the broad body of the American public at that time. Um, if performing a gyration from which it is not recovered yet. <laughs> but in any case, uh, it actually had very much that. But the question is, um, whether he went into writing, um, uh, Starship Troopers, which to me as a writer, I can't imagine writing a book to get fired from a publisher. I just, you know, it, it, I just couldn't get it out. Um, you, you gotta write what you gotta write. And well, I don't think he I think it overstates the matter to say he was trying to get fired. I, I think it, it's more, uh, it, it, and this is a matter of focus, of course, and nuance, but I think it's more that he felt these are the things that need to be said, and if Scribner's won't publish them, somebody else will. Mm -hmm. Well, it was, a, it was more like a damn the torpedoes. Well, let's turn to the Starbeast now in particular. Um, 
This is the story of a boy and his pet, or a pet and his pet boy, uh, as we eventually find out. Uh, when you grew up in a small town outside of Pittsburgh, and this, this juxtapos- juxtaposition of science fiction action on a suburban, otherwise very mundane setting is very much part of your Elf Home books, for instance. There are echoes of Mark Twain in this story. Um, what's so alluring about a boy and his pet star beast in a small, obviously American town? Well, I, I think when I write um, Elf Home, what I'm trying to get to is to show that man can adapt to any situation, um, and any so they can take any improbable situation you can put into, and gradually make it the norm, um, like the opal mines in Australia, where the entire gra- um, town is underground because it's unbearably hot outside. And once people adapt, what becomes the core to the society isn't the weirdness around them. It's the intrinsic nature of human relationships. And um, But the small towns declutter the landscape. So you get the bare bones. And it's the boy and his pet and his girlfriend and his mother. And, oh, there's a small army, but they're just an extension of the mother. And when you get down to yeah, the that's true. Bones, the mother sort of represents the uh, the the spirit of the entire town. She's very disapproving of yes. uh, of this, and she oh, yes. just she, and at one point she's pretty much ready to uh, to sign away to get rid of uh, Lumix, the star beast, from her. Oh, son. I think if she had the guts, she would just take a gun and, and shoot him. <laughs> it wouldn't do much she good. Did not like that. <laughs> yes, um, but. When you get down to those bare bones, you can see how the improbable has shaped the society. Uh, I had a friend who visited the opal mining towns, and he remarked to one of the natives how, how few safeguards there were against robbery, since they had these really expensive opals around. And they said, well, you know, everybody knows that if you steal from your neighbor, their native neighbor would hunt them down, kill them, and then drop them into one of the countless deep holes all over the place. So that, that's how they deal with crime. And so that's the... It sounds whole, like uh, the one who's a harsh mistress. <laughs> yes, that that sounds like a very Heinlein statement, actually, of one of his characters. <laughs> and I think that's why Heinlein and I are both doing more small towns than the big city. Heinlein's favorite writer was, correct me if I'm wrong, Bill, on this, was Mark Twain. Uh, he specifically said mm-hmm. that uh, Jonathan Swift's Gulliver's Travel was an influence on the Star Beast. And there's clearly a lot of stylistic influence from uh, one of my favorite writers, who is um, a bit forgotten these days, who is James Branch Cabell. Now, do I say Cabell right, Bill? Because I know you're a Cabell scholar. So. Yes, it, it rhymes with Grapple. That's what he said. Uh, in the in the Star Beast, Heinlein writes this quote: "The entire universe, Mister Undersecretary, is wildly unlikely to the point of ridiculousness. Therefore, we of Rargill know that God is a humorist." Now, this is out of the voice of an alien that has Medusa-like hair, but it it also seems to be coming directly from the author. Um, we see echoes here of something we find throughout Heinlein and. Uh, Aliens judging humans, often in courtroom-like proceedings. 
So, Bill, uh, was Heinlein testing out this Alien Judgment Day theme here for the first time? Uh, we see it in Have Space Shoot and Will Travel, for instance, and and in uh, Stranger in a Strange Land. Um, there, there's a, before I take up that, there's an interesting thing, feature of this book. It was written just as he was preparing to make his first around-the-world trip. And the... It's, it's the very last book that he writes that has an approving picture of a world state, the great socialist ideal of the last 50 years. Um, after, during, when he was on that trip around the world, he became disillusioned with the idea of a world state because there wasn't enough of what he viewed as the utterly necessary Jeffersonian mindset in the rest of the world to make a world state work. The book uh, that he wrote about that trip is called Tramp Royale, by the way, and we have it at BainEbooks.com. I would say this is really not a Heinlein idea. It's not something that was a idea that particular to him. Uh, you have to remember, in the 1950s, there were a heck of a lot of aliens judging humans, starting with uh, the day the Earth stood still, Mm -hmm. Remember, there had been, this was, the day the Earth stood still was a police action by a council of aliens that had already made the, the, the judgment on us. It wasn't a fatal judgment at this point, but, uh, there were a lot of aliens judging humans in the 1950s. And I think partly that's due to a kind of, uh, collective guilt over the, the, the atomic bombs. Interesting. Now, I think, uh, one one of the things about Heinlein in the in the early to mid fifties, then going through the decade, is that he was more in tune with the zeitgeist for that ten year period roughly than he ever was again. Yeah, he I I, I would argue he got the sixties right too though. I mean, <laughs> Stranger in a Strange Land is uh is a prototypical hippie <laughs> work, you know. Well the thing that's the, the peculiar thing about that. Uh, it's always a source of wonder, and, and it is, it, it seriously is, for, for people who didn't grow up with it. In about a third of the histories, that are cultural histories written about the 1960s, uh, Stranger and Strangeland is, is mentioned as a, as a pivotal work, uh, along with, you know, Tolkien's, the, the Ace Pirate Edition of Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, and Alan Watts, and uh, Herman Hesse, and, and, and certain others. So it was a phenomenally important book, but it was written before the 60s. It was published in 1960, uh, pardon me, 61, and it was written over a period from 1948 to 1960. So the, the counterculture, the 60s counterculture, built itself around Stranger. Sure, sure. It's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. Well, I'm interested in how how a writer uses Heinlein as an adult science fiction writer yourself, when Spencer. Um, how do you go back to books you enjoyed when you were young? Now, as a as a as a professional writer, do you have stylistic influences that that have root in Heinlein that you recognize in yourself now? I think so. Um, certainly, the reason why I'm a science fiction and fantasy writer is because there's books like his that I that I enjoyed above and beyond 
um, all the other ones. Because I'm like Bill. I basically started on one end of the library and started to read through. Um, so I, I kind of did it a little bit weirder in that I went to the card catalog and I would find all the books on a certain um, idea. So all the Revolutionary War books. And when I ran out of those, all the Civil War books, all the Westerns, all the classics. Um, and in the end, it was the science fiction and fantasy ones I loved the most. And the high line, I think there's two big things for me. One is that he he isn't a very um, poetic writer. Um, yes, he does have certain turns of phrases that are very poetic, but for the most part, you know, it, it's very, um, I, I'm not sure what the word is for it, but, you know, he gives you the facts and he doesn't worry about being too stylistic about it. That's, um, that's not as sparse as Hemingway, but, you know, um, but the other thing is his, his characters are all very intelligent people, and they're brave and they're moral. And then he unleashes chaoses around them, and they do the best they can. Um, and I really like that, and I try to go for that, um, in that I, I like writing the very intelligent person who also sees the world fairly um, good and bad and always chooses the good for the most part. Um, I can write the gray characters like Tommy Chang, but um, the characters that win my heart are the ones who are morally trying to do the right thing. Now, the maybe is that the the real innovation of Heinlein, Bill? That um, the idea that the individual that that he is writing um, with common guys uh, and and women as his main characters, and they're trying to do the best in the world, and the individual it becomes very important. It's more important than a social group or class um, to Heinlein as in the Star Beast, for instance, uh, Under Secretary Kiku threatens to bring on the destruction of Earth itself if rather than let John Thomas be taken away by these uh these alien Hrashi um without rights and as as a pet. Um and he couldn't he demands that John Thomas be able to ask to come back if he's not happy um going off with the Star Beast. Um is this sort of idea that the individual is is somehow of of infinite importance um and even if he's not the king or the president or the the dictator but he's just um just a regular guy he's just as important somehow in the scheme of things it, you don't really see this in science fiction um to the extent you see it in Heinlein it seems like he's brought in something new a new innovation in science fiction that John W Campbell recognized well, it works, but I think that there's another another factor that goes into it that's really important, and that what Heinlein was trying to do was to celebrate that which he was so deeply emotional about, and that is what America means in human history. Mm-hmm. Um, the 
the, what you're looking at when you read a Heinlein, particularly the juvenile, is American exceptionalism. This is what it's supposed to mean. And I'm going to speak for, my, for myself and for Heinlein to say the biggest problem with the 21st century is that we've turned our back on American exceptionalism. There's so much more we could cover, and we will on later podcasts. We hope to make these Heinlein Roundtables a continuing series here at the Bain Free Radio Hour. We've been discussing Robert A. Heinlein's The Star Beast and the Heinlein Young Adult Novels with William H. Patterson, Jr., the author of Robert A. Heinlein, in Dialogue with His Century, Volume 1, 1907-1948, Learning Curve. And Bain author Wynne Spencer, whose contemporary fantasy novel, Eight Million Gods, is out in hardcover in June. Thank you both very much. Thank you, Tony. Thank you. I really enjoyed the conversation, and nice to meet you, Bill. You too. We'll do it in person in one of these days. And now we continue with our most excellent audiobook serialization of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. This portion of Shadow of Freedom is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now, and if you're not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free. Or choose from 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. I'm a subscriber, and I use the service a lot. Okay, here's what has gone before. The newly admitted systems of the Talbot Quadrant are now allied with Honor Harrington's Royal Manticoran Star Kingdom. But trouble is brewing on the border between the Talbot Quadrant and the ancient crumbling Solarian League. As the Solarian League crumbles, planetary rebels along the frontier of the Talbot Quadrant try to break the Sali hold on their systems. Some are receiving arms and advice from a mysterious stranger who claims to work for Manticore. The problem is he actually works for the Mason Alignment, a secret organization that would like nothing more than to see the Salarian League and the Star Kingdom at one another's throats. Meanwhile, Royal Manticoran Navy Admiral Michelle Hankey, Countess Goldpeak, sympathizes with the rebels and wants to help, but refuses to be goaded into rash action by Mason provocation. We join Michelle Hankey as she attempts to convince the provincial government of the Talbot Quadrant that there is actually a conspiracy afoot and that they all must work together to deal with it. If she can't win them over to her plans, the Mason alignment may already have won. Here is part 10 of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. She saw one or two sets of eyes flicker at the reference to Mesa. Not everyone in the quadrant endorsed her own suspicions of Mesa and Manpower Incorporated. It wasn't that anyone questioned Manpower's involvement in what had happened at Monica and New Tuscany, nor did anyone in the quadrant doubt Mesa's and Manpower's implacable and thoroughly reciprocated a hostility towards the Star Empire. More than one of the people sitting around that table, though, remained of the opinion that frontier security and possibly other interests within the League had been using manpower as a cat's paw. Certainly that made more sense, in their view, than the possibility that a single outlaw transstellar corporation was using the entire Solarian League as a cat's paw. Most of the others were prepared to grant at least the possibility that Michelle and Kumalo and their staffs might be correct, that manpower or the Mesa system might indeed have been the prime mover might even have provided the invisible starships which had carried out the Yawata strike, 
Michelle doubted any of them found the notion any less bizarre than she did, but they were at least open to it. And if she was reading the ONI appreciations from home accurately, opinion within the Admiralty and the Grantville government was hardening in the same direction. There was, however, a vast gap between prepared to grant the possibility and willing to bet the farm on it. And she decided, again, not to go into all the details of the logic behind her proposed deployments. She'd considered mentioning that she intended to base herself on Montana, closest to Mesa and what she believed was clearly the greater threat, while assigning the Tillerman Force to Vice Admiral Theodore Bennington, who'd become her senior battle squadron commander upon his arrival from the home system. Under the circumstances, though, it would undoubtedly be wiser to let that particular sleeping dog lie. She didn't expect Alcazar or Kreitzman to object anyway, and they were the Talbot decision-makers who really mattered where fleet movements were concerned. In addition to the deployment plan Admiral Goldpeak and I are proposing, Kumalo said after a moment, there are certain other measures we'd like to set in motion. Three of them are especially important. First, as Prime Minister Alcazar, Minister Lababibi, Minister Kreitzman, Minister Clark, and I have already discussed, we need to complete our survey of the Quadrant's industrial capabilities as quickly as possible. I suspect our local resources may be able to contribute more materially to our defense here than some people might think. Nobody's going to be building any super-dreadnoughts any time soon, but several of our systems, Rembrandt, San Miguel, and Spindle itself come to mind, have sufficient local industry to provide significant support for both our local defense and striking forces. Obviously, we'll be making technical advisors from Admiral Goldpeak's repair and depot ships available wherever possible. Secondly, and possibly even more importantly, Admiral Goldpeak has proposed we begin a vigorous program to expedite the raising and training of naval personnel right here in the quadrant. The Navy's taken substantial losses in both the Battle of Manticore and the Yawata Strike, and unless I'm sadly mistaken, the emphasis in the home system and Trevor Star, where the bulk of our more technologically sophisticated population is concentrated, is going to be on reconstituting our skilled labor force as rapidly as possible. I believe that, especially if we make use of our lack simulators already available to us and request additional simulators from the home system, we'll be able to produce and train a significant number of naval personnel. To be painfully blunt, and I hope no one will take offense, providing personnel with the education level we would expect from the home system or Trevor Star is going to be beyond our capabilities here for some time to come. Within the next several T years, the effort being invested in improving the Quadrant's educational systems is going to correct that problem. For the immediately foreseeable future, however, it's going to remain with us. That means the personnel we'll be able to train won't be as fully trained as we might hope, won't have as deep a skill set, let's say, but they'll still provide a very useful expansion of our manpower, and the technical aspects of their education can be continued aboard ship. The third initiative we'd like to consider very seriously is for us to use the Quadrant Guard as the basis for an expansion of planetary combat troops. Manticore has never had a powerful ground combat component, 
and frankly a lot of what we did have has become committed to Silesia, not because there's a lot of armed resistance going on, but because we had to pretty much disband a sizable percentage of the existing Silesian forces when we started weeding out entrenched cronyism and military corruption. With them gone, we had no choice but to provide peacekeeping and law enforcement personnel and cadre to train and supervise locally raised police forces out of our none-too-large marine and army strength. That situation seems to be well in hand, but it's still going to tie up those marines and army personnel for many months to come. That diversion to Silesia is also the reason we've seen virtually no army personnel transferred to the Quadrant. Well, that and the fact that the Quadrant isn't Silesia, and, with the exception of Norbrandt and a couple of other lunatics, we haven't faced anywhere near the same need for additional peacekeeping and law enforcement personnel as Silesia, particularly with the Guard in the course of formation. In addition, as we all know, our new-build construction is very short on organic marine detachments, and Tenth Fleet's entire attached marine strength amounts to little more than a pair of brigades. That's a lot of firepower, given their equipment and training, but it's a very limited total number of men and women. If the situation with the League turns as ugly as we think it may, if we find ourselves forced to carry out offensive operations against the League, for example, that shortage in troop strength is likely to come home to roost with a vengeance. Because of those considerations, we believe it would be a good idea to use the Guard as a platform to begin raising, training, and equipping at least several divisions of infantry and atmospheric combat support units right here in the Quadrant. We can teach the technical skills an effective ground force would require much more rapidly than we can train personnel in the sorts of shipboard skills the Navy will need. In addition, our existing infrastructure can produce planetary combat equipment as good as or better than anything we're likely to face out here in the Verge, and probably get it into the troops' hands in adequate quantities by the time we can get the necessary recruiting and training programs into place. Frankly, it may turn out that the provision of the ground forces we're almost certain to require may be the most effective immediate contribution to the Star Empire's overall defense that the Quadrant can provide. And finally, while the skills we'll have to teach our planetary combat forces aren't the same ones the Navy requires, they'll still represent a powerful step upward for a lot of our member star systems here in the Quadrant, one which is going to carry over to their peacetime economies once the shooting ends. In addition to the actual increase in manpower and eventual overall education and training levels, however, the sort of programs we're proposing should also contribute to the Quadrant's sense of solidarity and unity, and that, after all, is one reason for the Guard's existence in the first place. We all know this is still a new political unit. We're all still settling down with one another, and the threat of outside attack is generating a lot of fully justified anxiety and uncertainty. We believe, I believe, that directly involving as many as possible of our citizens in their own self-defense will be the best antidote for that anxiety. We're not proposing this as any sort of placebo. If it succeeds as well as we believe it can, it will contribute materially to our ability to defend the Quadrant 
and probably to the overall defensive strength of the Star Empire outside the Quadrant. For that matter, I personally would strongly oppose any dispersal of effort that wouldn't contribute to that ability and combat strength. I'm simply pointing out that it could contribute in more ways than one. There was silence for several seconds. Then Prime Minister Alcazar looked at Baroness Medusa. I'm inclined to endorse Admiral Kumalo's and Admiral Goldpeak's proposals, Madam Governor. I know Henry's already had considerable input into them, and while I'd like the opportunity to read over the details for myself, I have the greatest respect for both Admiral Kumalo's and Admiral Goldpeak's judgment. With your concurrence, I'd like to suggest we authorize them to begin organizing to deploy Admiral Goldpeak's units as they've proposed, and that you and I review those details with an eye towards giving them a firm approval and requesting the Quadrant Parliament's approval for the necessary funding, of course, within the next two days. That seems perfectly reasonable to me, Mr. Prime Minister, Medusa agreed, and that ought to give everyone else involved... She allowed her own gaze to slew sideways to Lababibi, Clark, and Westman for a moment. Enough time to review them and put forward any suggestions they might care to make as well. In that case, Alcazar said with a somewhat crooked smile, I propose we adjourn. I'll see all of you at the War Cabinet meeting Wednesday, I'm sure, by which time, no doubt, the ghost of Murphy will have visited yet another crisis upon us. That was David Weber's Shadow of Freedom, Part 10, read by Allison Johnson. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com, thanks to Hank Davis and Ruth Judkowitz, who made the music. And rocket ship Galileo heaps of superatomic gratitude to Robert A. Heinlein scholar William H. Patterson, Jr., and to Bain author Wynne Spencer. Please join us next time here at the pounding heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars. 